Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome everyone to Ancient Office Hour's first ever panel discussion. Today's panel is focused on the evolution of authoritarianism, starring Kara Cooney, Rachel Finno, and Lexi Henning. I'll let them introduce themselves and their affiliations in just a moment here, and we'll get started with the question. Hi, I'm Rachel Fennell, and I am a very new assistant professor at Bethany College. And I'm Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor at UCLA, professor of Egyptian art and architecture, is my official title, but I don't really do that that often, and it's funny how that works, and I'm chair of the department, and that sucks. Hi, uh, Lexi Henning. I am the venerable host of Ancient Office Hours podcast. I thought this would be a really fun opportunity to get some friends of mine together and talk about our favorite subject, authoritarianism. What is authoritarianism, you ask? Aha! It could mean a lot of different things. But to me, I would personally say that this is an ever-evolving subject, but primarily it is what happens when democracy fails. Basically, it could be the cult of personality of one person. It could be a strong leader taking control of their country and basically changing everything. And it's like a mix totalitarianism and just like straight up fascism. Um, Not all authoritarianism systems are fascist, but they usually happen in my mind to be connected. So I will be learning a lot more about that and about cousin nationalism. Uh, I will be attending grad school at the University of Athens starting in September. So hopefully I will get to learn more about all of those things. So I'm going to kick this over to my good friend, Rachel Fennell. Hey, everybody. Rachel Fennell. I am an assistant professor at Bethany College in Lindsborg, Kansas. Go Swedes. And I recently graduated with my PhD from the University of Kansas. Have to shameless plug. Lexi is a Mizzou grad, so I have to always throw in rock chalk. But for me, I think authoritarianism is something that can be distilled down to power. Who has the power? How long have they had the power? And where does this power come from? And most of the time, authoritarianism is based around either a single ruler or a very small group of rulers who sort of limit who has the authority or the power to actually make decisions. So for me, it's all about power and limiting who has a say in that society and in governance and in decision-making. Hi, I'm Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor at UCLA, professor of uh, Egyptian social history, art history, and and many other Egyptian things. Um, Also chair of the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. And what is authoritarianism is a little different for me. I I totally agree with what Rachel's saying that it's about power. Um, Where Lexi says it's where democracy fails, that imposes the idea that there needed to be a democracy first, which is (laughs) not going to happen in the ancient Egyptian world or most of antiquity in most places, right? Democracy is a weird and strange way of limiting power to a citizen based in a very decentralized, competitive political system. But anyway, for me, when we say authoritarianism, it means that there's a we've reached a tipping point, that somehow we've gone beyond what people consider acceptable or normal, whatever that normal is, whether you're in Egypt or Singapore or Mexico, that normal is going to, we all, it's, it's like um, the Supreme Court said about pornography. I know it when I see it. It's this tipping point of when is too much power being taken by one particular man or 
as Rachel said, a group of men, and really it's almost always men. If the women are there, they're there as placeholders, and that's interesting, and maybe we'll change that. But it's, a, it's about the patriarchy. It's a patriarchal complex system that distills power to a few people and holds it through economic force, um, violent military force, and political bullying. And I think that that's the way I would, I would see authoritarianism. Well, thank you, everyone, for that stellar start to our discussion. The next question, we're actually going to try to start from the beginning here. When did you think that authoritarianism started? Or if you are a bit more on the modern focus of things, when did you start to learn about authoritarianism yourself? I came from ancient and kind of like bumper card my way into the, the modern realm because I really didn't intend to go there. Uh, my background definitely was ancient everything, ancient Greece. So... It was really a kind of a, a happy accident, but uh, my freshman year of college, I, I wanted to get better at public speaking and just sort of put myself out there and learn more because I realized my knowledge was really limited. So I forced myself to join Model UN, which was a real bold move because I was like, okay, this is a bunch of like type A sharks and I'm going to just jump in the tank and see how it goes. And if they eat me alive, so be it. And it was really fun because I think my very first simulation basically was dealing with illicit arms trade or something. Either way, the, the country I was chosen to represent had an authoritarian government. And I remember doing all the background research on it. And I was like, whoa, this is really weird. Let's learn more about this. So that's kind of when I was sort of aware of it was like an actually omnipresent force that is always trying to push its way into uh, modern thought and conversation. So I was like, oh, okay, this sounds really cool. And then it wasn't until went abroad to Scotland in 2015, my junior year, that I got really interested in Scottish nationalism, um, because there's is a very constitutional nationalism. And then just wanting to study more of that, I discovered like, oh, so this is like a stepping stone to authoritarianism. Okay, I got it. I got it. Let's let's do this. So, so that's really how I kind of figured out it was a thing. It started way back in ancient times, so it's definitely not new. So you kind of started uh, learning by doing, a little bit of a backwards way of it, and then said, oh, hey, you know what? This is something interesting. I might want to learn about how it's done instead of just be the authoritarian to start. Yeah, basically. So I think about, you know, different political systems as they are, right? Democracies, autocracies, they're always like the opposite. We, we were like, if you're not one, you're the other. It seems to be the, the sort of dialogue we see around these sorts of political systems. And democracy itself is quite new. It's not like it hasn't been around for a long period of time. In fact, authoritarianism is basically how most of the world has been governed for large chunk of it. I don't know if I could pinpoint a starting point for authoritarianism. It's been around, but that's just one of those things um, that I think has just, we think of democracy as this really great system. And I'm not, not by any means saying it's not, I think it's a great, it's a great uh, electoral system uh, and political system overall, but it's really quite new and we're still learning and, and growing as a democracy and, and what democracy means and how it's actually actually put into force. For me, learning about authoritarianism is probably, you know, when I was a kid reading books about World War II and being introduced to, you know, fascists like Hitler and Mussolini and just being fascinated by how someone like that could gain power. And then eventually that passion led me to, and those questions led me to graduate school. And then of course, getting my PhD, but it was probably a young age when I was just super fascinated with how terrible people could be loved and revered and followed by the masses. And everyone was totally cool with it. They were like, yeah, I'm going to follow this dude. He's a lunatic, but we love him and we're going to do what he says. And it just blew my mind, to be honest. Or that combination of revered and feared. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if when authoritarianism is really moving into a more despotic, frightening, akhenatony, the, the fear and the lunacy being a part of it. And Anne Applebaum has written a lot about this, that the big lie is essential. The ridiculousness is essential because then you can see, the authoritarian can see, and his henchmen can see who's going along with it and who's not. So you kind of need some ridiculous tests, some hoops, to make people jump through. And if they jump through them cleanly, you're like, okay, you're one of us, you pass that test. And so the ridiculousness is, is a part of it. And you see this in the ancient world as well. But I mean, one thing I would stress when dealing with authoritarianism is that once patriarchal complexity is created, 
Once you move from a hunter-gatherer system or a horticultural system or a more simple human system into something that involves cities and states, city-states in competition with one another internally and externally, you have authoritarianism in some way, shape, or form. And then you're talking about a gradient. And that's the kind of work that I do, where it's always a gradient between how much power that one king at the center has in ancient Egypt versus the elites. And so you have this push and pull between the king at the center and then all of these elites or other interest groups on the other side. And there are times when the king is very weak vis-a-vis those other elements. And there are times when the king is very strong. One pattern that I have noticed in ancient Egypt in particular, and I'm writing more about this, that my next book, um, The Good Kings, talks about this, that as soon as the gradient pushes and the authoritarian pulls more power into himself is right before it's all going to fall apart into a glorious heap, into a big mess. And I think by bringing up Mussolini and Hitler, you know, same thing, there were lead ups to those two individuals. And yes, I just compared 20th century things with ancient Egypt, and it can be done. And and I'll, I'll throw it back to you guys. You mentioned the big lie. And this is something I've heard a lot about in the media recently, but it sounds like you're referring to a bit more of ancient or historical application. Can you expand that a little bit? And I invite the other panelists to do the same. Yeah, I mean, in ancient Egypt, it's rather simply explained. It's something that everyone will understand because divine kingship is the biggest lie of all, that there is a human being that is divinely chosen or inspired or inseminated by God, right? So this idea that one person is different has to be treated differently. Their body must be fetishized. Even their poo has to be treated in a particular way if we look at Louis XIV's solar court, right? In ancient Egypt, it would have been no different. So just getting people to believe that that one person is divinely chosen and getting them to behave differently vis-a-vis that person is step number one to the big lie because of course everyone's going to see that person die they know that generations before the king before has died and so you create all kinds of ideological untruths if you want to go hard marxist on it but really just ideological justifications that oh no the spirit of kingship travels from him and when he dies it goes to the next king or no, no, he's a human body, but the God created him through the wife or whatever. You know, there's all kinds of ways to justify it. But just getting people to engage in that pageantry in a somber and believing way is step number one. And then everything else follows. So in some ways, divine kingship invented the biggest lie. Well, that got me thinking a lot because now, obviously, if you discount modern times, which it would be almost impossible with like social media and phones and everyone having them. But in ancient times, it's like, you know, would there be any way for like an authoritarian system to essentially like if you didn't want to deal with the death of that leader and then have to sort of make up an excuse for why their heir or whatever is like the best next person, would it have been possible for someone to like shroud themselves, hide themselves in the palace and the whatever, and then literally never show themselves to the public and then just have kind of like statements trickle out. I know a lot of times it it revolves around you need a lot of people to sort of see and revere this leader. But I'm like, if you for say just hid in the palace and then had just your inner circle and then even when the person dies and you have someone else take over, could you still say that that person was alive? They're immortal because you never see them. Or does that not work because the public in some space has to see them? No, because your court is always there. Your court is there next to the king and engaging with the fetishized body. So it's not really going to work and you don't need to. And getting people to do these other things is much more powerful. When you say that, oh, we wouldn't do this now because of our phones and our other things, Lexi, I kind of disagree because the phones have all kinds of ways of adding a halo, making skin beautiful, giving us the perfect butt or something. But people spend masses amounts of money to get their eyelashes extended and their hair perfect and fake hair. Be youthful forever. And you add all of the ideological spin and surround yourself with henchmen who are spinning your story. And I think that you can make yourself into a kind of divinized being. And I think Donald Trump has done that for many of his followers. So Yeah, some people see through it, but some people drink the Kool-Aid. So I keep thinking about autocrats and how they use this sort of cult of personality to really build this persona that they are somehow divine. I think of like Kim Jong-il and just the Kim family in North Korea and how when they were born, it was like the clouds parted and there was this rainbow and it was like this whole thing. And it's not just in North Korea that you have this sort of storied beginning of these individuals. You have 
autocrats building these fancy palaces. You have Turkmenistan. The leader there has quite the following and people really bought into this. They buy into this idea that these autocrats, these dictators are somehow special and divine and have this sort of mythical beginning. There are a lot of different authoritarians who build on this cult of personality. This is something that works It helps build support amongst the population. It helps them better be able to, you know, find support and prevent people from questioning their authority and their power. So you were asking if authoritarianism and accessibility are diametrically opposed, are they connected in some ways? I think that this is a really interesting one because you want to keep most people away from the authoritarian leader. You want to keep most people out of the palace and separate them. And the king or whoever is this special person you see from afar. But you have to give your high elites access to that authoritarian leader. And you have to give them special access amongst themselves. So it's competitive access. So some of those elites have accessibility to the king and some are farther away in a throne room where they can barely see the top of his head or whatever. And somebody else gets to go and sit right next to him and eat alongside him at the table. So there's all kinds of different levels of accessibility that reify who is important within a government regime and who is not. And that helps to move the system organically forward so that some people are part of the game and some are not. And it's all being shown to everyone else. It's something that we in the United States, I think, understand very deeply in our celebrity culture and political celebrity culture. Who gets to know Barack Obama? Who knows Kim Kardashian? Who doesn't? Who saw her from afar? And who went up to her and said, oh, my God, I love you. And, it's, and But you know you don't have access, right? Who can call her up on the phone? I think the, not that Kim Kardashian is an authoritarian leader, but, you know within the world of media, who knows? Lexi here. You know, it's interesting when we talk about accessibility, because that just brought up a couple of things. Like we really weaponize bestowing accessibility as a culture. Like it's really interesting how if you want to be closer to the power center and then you're like, all right, well, maybe I'll toe the line here or whatever. And then you're like, ah, yes, another one. Well, I'm going to grant you this audience with blah, 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 whoever it is. And so you could technically then argue you give a lot of people accessibility to you. You just obviously have that roadblock to make sure they toe the line first. So it's interesting how accessible we basically like can be versus want to be. Can I really In ancient Egypt, when authoritarianism is rather new in its first dynasty, it had been around for, you know, a couple hundred years at least, but they make accessibility to the king into this thing where people maybe aren't clamoring over each other, but they willingly go to their death to be next to the king in his burial. And that is the ultimate access to the king because you're with him forever in the afterlife. And people must have, according to the archaeological evidence we have, stood by and watched their daughters, sons, brothers, husbands be murdered in front of them to have forever access with the king. So that is the lengths that we will go in our competition with one another to get that kind of access. It's a short-term thing. It only lasts for 150 years, that first dynasty, and then dynasty two, they're like, we're not doing this. We would never. But the cultural memory of that lives on. The ancient, the idea of you need to, you know, you want to willingly go be sacrificed or whatever with the king, that relies a lot on ideology and and really having them drink the Kool-Aid. So I'm like, could authoritarianism like do pretty well without like a very strong religious ideology in it? I'm thinking a lot about autocrats have a really great way of pulling the masses to do terrible things. And I think now during the Cultural Revolution, you had people, you know, going after intellectuals, going after anyone who disagreed students, and this isn't just in China, the students will like basically tell on their teacher or their parents or their neighbor. There's a lot of talk about how you turn on on one another just to show your loyalty and your fervor for some dictator. And you don't have to have some religious aspect in my mind. I think sometimes you could make the argument that maybe religion could be counter to an authoritarian because the authoritarian needs their followers to be as religious towards them as they would be towards some deity. And many times that's why you have autocrats going and removing any sort of obstacles that could be in their way, right? They get rid of religion or they outlaw certain aspects of religion and their worship of them takes place of that. So I don't know if you necessarily need a religious aspect per se to sort of answer your question, Lexi. 
It definitely on the ancient side, you have a lot of places that are run pretty much all on religious ideology, or if not run on it, they're they're very powerful. So kind of seeing that as like one of the, the many changing trends from ancient to modern. But you know, care you can you can take that one. Yeah, I mean, this is why I like to use Michael Mann's uh, The Sources of Social Power, which he separates into ideological, economic, military, and political. And I've already pulled it out in this discussion, right? Ideological, he differentiates from religious because you can be a regime or a power structure that uses ideology that has nothing to do with God, nothing to do with a structured religion, and is still extraordinarily powerful. And I think we could include today political ideology, having the hero Marine come back to his family on the football field at halftime with the flag flying and a flyover and all of that ideology of patriotism and nationalism and veteran support and all of those things can then make people sacrifice their lives for a conflict that's about making money for a few corporations potentially and maybe getting access in some ways to this authoritarian power. I don't see these things as a hard line between ancient and modern. I see it all working in a very similar way. Fascinating points, everyone. Thank you so much for those. Next question we want to ask here. Most authoritarian regimes have a strong inner circle or affiliate with the party in modern times. How has this evolved over time and what elements stay largely the same? An inner circle develops. I mean, that's the first thing. The inner circle is from whence the king comes, one could argue. So it's that oligarch, patriarch, that group of men that somehow are able through coercion, debt, ideology, able to separate themselves from other people. And then from there, I would argue you get one and there can be warfare. In Egypt, there's evidence of warfare between different factions ruled by one man, different kings until there can only be one. <laughs> but then the way of co-opting and the way of dealing politically, because military power can only get you so far, it's extraordinarily expensive. So once you win the game of thrones, so to speak, and you become the king, then you need to co-opt those other guys that you've just beaten. And there your inner circle is born. So you need to reward, you need to give them access, you need to make sure that you're giving them something so that they protect you and don't work against you. And that is a very fine balance to work with. And one of the most interesting parts of authoritarianism, you know, when that balance goes wrong, when the inner circle kills the authoritarian, which is usually how the authoritarian is taken out, and then that person takes control. Ancient Rome is probably the best place to look for all of that. But you guys can comment the modern aspect. I'll just chime in and say modern military involvement in authoritarian regimes. And Rach had said something about Morsi was like the only one who had no military either background or training or something. And Rach, I'll let you chime in on this, but I just find it interesting how I kind of posed the question like, oh, so is that why he was cooed and didn't make it because he did not have that strong military affiliation? You know, the interesting thing about the military being involved in politics and this question about affiliating with parties, a little context about how we think about modern authoritarian regimes are that we often put them into categories or typologies. And it's all about who has the power, basically, who's the central group of people who have the power. You have the single party regime, which just says uh, it's a part more of a party dominant. It doesn't mean that other parties don't exist in that. You just have a single party ruling and remaining in power. And they're basically how a lot of governments, everything goes to the party, more or less. You have military regimes where the power is vested sort of in that military itself, which is what we're talking about. So you have military officers and the military itself sort of guiding how the government works. You have the good old fashioned personalist dictator who it's just all through the individual, but there still are a group of people in which they govern. I think that's always, you know, sort of brushed past as like unimportant, but it's incredibly important when you think about how you have to have a really strong inner circle, even to lead as a personalist dictator. Then we have monarchies, which are, you know, your classic king, queen, they're the ones where power goes through. And the final one is often a competitive authoritarian regime. So there's, they have competitive elections, but they are not fully democratic, they're, but they're not all that competitive. They're just like this weird sort of hybrid 
setup. I'm going to time out real quick, Lech, but you were talking about the military in Egypt and how that impacts, because I want to make sure that I answered your question. I don't think I answered it. I was just trying to give a little context for the listeners (laughs) to like talk about how when we're talking about a military regime, it's a distinct type of typology. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the answer to that is, I don't know. There is a lot that has gone on in Egypt and the military has been a, a critical aspect of governance in Egypt, especially in modern times, especially since the 1950s. I don't know the answer to your question if that was why he was was cooed, but I'm sure that there was some unrest and some discontent that led to the coup that overthrew Morsi. And then LCC, or most people refer to him as CC, has been in power since then. But the military is a major institution in modern Egypt in terms of how the government works. I've noticed that as we move from the typical dictator of the 70s and 80s who wore his military uniform, we're now moving on to the business dictator of the aughts and up to 20. 21, where we find ourselves of the dictator who wears his suit and not the military uniform, because that's such an easy cipher for the authoritarian dictator. And I think that the ideology that is being used, because ideology always has to be used, there's always got to be some justification for how this person stays in power. Currently around the world, amongst authoritarian regimes, the ideology is democracy and capitalism. And those two things are intertwined and almost uh, removable. They, they just are so connected to one another. So if you're holding to a capitalist, democratic ideology, it doesn't mean you have to actually practice the democracy part, but you have to go through the motions. You have to hold the vote. You have to talk about the people. You, you have to do the things that need to be done. And I think that's the slippery slope in the United States that we're, we're dealing with right now and that certainly much of Europe is dealing with as well. You set yourself up as this every man wearing the business suit or CEO kind of guy, and it's all shielding what's actually happening. I talk about this in my book, that that democracy is as much of a shield as divine kingship of ancient Egypt. I think that's a really great point. What an authoritarian regime is has evolved, especially at the end of the Cold War, because we are adding these institutions and these processes like elections, allowing people to protest that these sorts of things it's not as protest is not as widely allowed but elections are absolutely a thing you see in most autocracies in modern times and that does come from this sort of acting as if we are democracy giving this nice sort of facade that we are we really care what people think we're giving them this sort of a way to let off steam a way to make it seem as if their opinions and their views matter, but everyone knows that the election is not free and fair. I think it was Stalin who, who said basically something to the extent of, sure, I'll let you have you know elections, but I'm going to be the one counting the votes. Like It's very clear that they have these things. And it does feel very cynical to be like, elections don't matter and all of these things. But in autocracies, many times, especially at the national level, sometimes at the local level, they will matter a bit more. But at the national level, they don't really matter all that much. It's predetermined, unfortunately, who's going to win most of the time. Russia is a great example of that. I know, Rach, we've talked about Putin a lot recently in the last two years, but I feel like there was a Turkey maybe where like a huge opponent of the current president or prime minister, the, the mayoral risk. Yeah, for Istanbul. And I was like, oh, hey, that's pretty good. And I remember at the time people were like, oh, this is great. This is going to change a lot of things. And Erdogan is not going to be, you know, able to do all his stuff. And I'm like, I'm going to bet. Basically what happened was Erdogan was, listen, I see this election happen cool, but we're going to do it again. We're not going to, we're not going to accept these results, but what if we did it again? I think they had the same outcome in the the second race in Istanbul for the mayoral position. The same party won. I just remember people being very hopeful and they're like, oh yeah, well, if the same thing happened again, it's, it's going to stick, right? Wrong. Autocrats don't go up down without a fight. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And this discussion we're having right now is an excellent lead into our next question. Many authoritarian regimes rely on the other as a foil or target to motivate their supporters. And some have made comparisons to the paradigms of this conflict as portrayed in media. So these are the classic archetypes of man versus God, man versus nature, and man versus man, or seldom seen the autocratic uh, paradigm of man versus self. Do you think these comparisons apply? Why or why not? This is very old. The ancient Egyptians created their kingship based on their domination of the other. And the first images, the very first images of kingship that we get show a king holding an enemy kneeling on the ground by the hair, ready to bring his stone mace down to crush his skull. That moment right before this execution of the other who doesn't, who can't even exist in the same space of the king, that is the means of him justifying his power. And then every other ideological and political reality surrounds this idea of what is ma'at, what is true, what is good, what is ordered, and what is not. And what is not needs to be expunged from the world, and it invades every aspect of life. So the existence of the other and the existence of the perceived threat, this is, this is it. This is the core of authoritarianism. It is the core reason beyond getting your elites together because they, you hate the same people that they hate, and then they're gonna, the elite's going to go with this particular authoritarianism, authoritarian. But to get larger group of people to go along with authoritarianism, these perceived threats and the idea that one authoritarian leader can bring together all of these different powers that he has to keep you safe, to make sure that your livelihood and your life will not be harmed by these others, it's the key. It's the reason, in my opinion, that authoritarians get into power, that they can stay in power. And in reality, when you look at it, like you look at somebody like Ramses II, and you look at how cosmopolitan the society was and how many others there actually were that were working for him as mercenaries, as bodyguards, as fighters on the battlefield, immigrants coming from all different kinds of places, you know, like in Hamilton, immigrants, they get the job done. That exists at the same time that the manufacture of the other is happening. So these two things are in tension with one another, working with one another, but this is, in my opinion, what it's all about. I just keep thinking of the quote, I alone can fix it. You know, you have this sort of this us versus them mentality, but then I can fix all of these us versus them things. And that's the basis for a lot of autocrats coming into power is there's a problem here, but I can fix it. It's them. We're going to blame that group or these other people who don't look like us, who don't worship like us, who don't think like us, who are elites or, you know, insert some label. And that's the basis for a lot of authoritarian rule. And that is, it sounds as if that has always been, nearly always been the case amongst authoritarianism, whether it's modern times or ancient times. 
in the most popular examples of authoritarian regimes taking power in the, in the more recent times, I mean, you look at Hitler, you look at Stalin and Mussolini and all these guys. And yeah, I mean, this idea of the other is very prevalent because that's basically what they used to get power. But where I was kind of going with, with the North Korean idea is that while on the surface it's really similar, when you have the idea of other, you get really close into that line of fascism. So if you're othering people, especially if you're doing it by like genetics the way Hitler did, then you're definitely just like, oh, okay, so then not only are you authoritarian, like you are clearly fascist, you want this racial purity stuff, blah, 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 blah. To me, I've seen it give rise to the idea that these are inherently connected. And so in conversations with folks, all I hear, it seems is like, Oh, yeah. If you are authoritarian, then you are by default a fascist as well. You know, there's this idea that like, oh, you can't just want like one strong leader to come fix your problems without also wanting to eradicate the other person or whatever. When you have the interesting case study of like North Korea, that seems to be the different the outlier, right? Where sure, there's like people that they want to get rid of. And there's this very long standing hatred for the United States. It's just so different in that don't know if I'd really call North Korea fascist. If we have all these case studies of different people who have been fascist using this power structure and wielding it, can you have one without the other? Can you be authoritarian without actually being fascist? That's something that really fascinates me. And I'm sure that, you know, answers are going to be quite different between ancient and modern times. You raise an interesting question that I don't know if I've ever thought about. And that's this idea of like, if you support an authoritarian, do you automatically want to either blame someone else for your issues or get rid of another group? At what point does that happen? And I don't know the answer to that question. So that's something I'm going to keep thinking about. I don't think that to be an authoritarian that you have to be a fascist. Are all fascist authoritarians? Yes. Are all authoritarians fascists? No. At least that's my view in modern times. And I think a lot of times we use fascism as a pejorative term. It's like, well, you're a fascist. Therefore, there's something that you said and you're a fascist. And so I don't necessarily think that's a good way to approach conversations in in general, but I don't know. I mean, I think fascism is one of those distinct things and there are certain requirements that need to be met. And I don't think all authoritarians are inherently fascist is my point, at least in the modern context. From there, I'm going to go ahead and bring it to kind of last main question for the panel. Looking at the evolution of authoritarianism over time and now, what does the next evolution of authoritarianism look like 20, 50, 100 years from now? Oh, I'm not a soothsayer. I look to the past. So I think that now authoritarianism is, I think it's being revealed for what it is. Not that it wasn't before, but I think it's in this globalized interconnected world. I think people are able to see it. They're able to see it in their local systems that are democracies, potentially. They're able to see it in some of the ideology that's around them. It's certainly part of our zeitgeist. It's on the mind. And I see two opposing forces. One, the patriarchal authoritarian force that is pushing very hard to maintain its control and maintain its power. And let's put that at like 45% of the population globally. (laughs) And then the other side has got a little bit of an edge, arguably, where you're exposing things. You're talking about women's rights, children's rights, non-binary sexual realities, anti-capitalism and how harmful capitalism is. And these two things are going head to head in every aspect of social power. In my opinion, it's a race for the authoritarian to cut down every forest because only then does it have value <laughs> to on the other side, unless they're vacationing there, of course, on the other side to the others who are trying to say that we need a more sustainable way of life. Authoritarianism isn't sustainable. It burns itself out fast. It's very expensive. It's very wasteful. It sacrifices people even within the inner circle, some of them willingly, some of them not. And I I see a world interested in some sort of sustainability and now blaming the authoritarians for climate change, for things that we know we need to do something about. It's on everybody's mind, but who wins um, if there's a if there's winning? There's never winning in the world, not with humans. The detente will be for the next hundred years. I'm going with the 55%, but I think it's going to be really ugly. It's interesting because what I take care of from a lot of your research and stuff also is that things don't really 
change that much. I mean, we're always looking to the past because we're always figuring, oh, this works. So I'm going to just adapt it to my current situation and then use it. It seems like things are pretty tried and true. I don't know if I'd say it's going to change drastically since what they did in the past was pretty effective. But I will say that, yes, I agree. It is not a self-sustaining system because it always relies on anger and, and wanting to fix something. You're always manufacturing issues. What I would say is in the next hundred years or whatever, whether the current, whatever it is that authoritarians are currently harping at as the problem, when that eventually burns itself out and fails, now that could take a really long time or it could come a lot quicker, but I would say whenever that fails, it's so inward that they're gonna, they're just gonna take something else that previously was good or, or acceptable and they're just gonna turn on that. So right now, I think the popular thing in some countries is, oh, it's the rich elites. They're the problem. We need to put it in the hands of the people, the demos, because that's blah, 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 blah. Once blaming the rich people, the Bezoses of the world gets boring or should something happen and we like get rid of that entirely, they're just going to find something else. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see how far people can keep blaming the rich elites or the whatevers that come. Um, but there's a plot twist, Lexi. There's a big plot twist. And that plot twist is a chain that means that we can't sustain these authoritarian systems for much longer. And that plot twist is is the earth, who's <laughs> not having any of it anymore. You know, when you talk about people who do climate science, and when you look around the world and you just read your newspaper, the changes that are happening are happening much faster and much more strongly than than many people expected. And that is going to topple this way of life. And, and I talk about this in the last chapter of my book, that if patriarchy has lasted for 10,000 years, that's a blip on the on the radar of humankind. It's a very short period of time. It's the agriculture revolution that morphed into the industrial revolution. And now I think that the lack of sustainability and nearing 8 billion people on a planet that is not growing and the demand for constant growth, none of this is sustainable and it will break. This system can't just keep going. So when I say that things stay the same, I say that things stay the same for like 10,000 years max. And where I'm sitting in California, it's only been this way for a couple hundred at most. I think we're nearing a breaking point. I think that it has to happen. What that is going to be is what everyone is talking about and why we are gathered here today, I would argue. That's true. I did not factor in the world just burning and killing us all before we mm -hmm. figure our shit out. So mm -hmm. that's a good point. You know, the world could just mm -hmm. kill us. <laughs> well, but that's what we've done for the last 10,000 years. We just keep going with the next authoritarian and the next authoritarian and then a little breathing space in between and then another one. And it does repeat itself in a samsaric sort of way. But now everyone can feel something different is coming. And that's why I think so many people are, they're thinking about this. They're trying to sneak into this power vacuum. vacuum. The vacuum is there. It's an interesting time to be alive. Here, I unfortunately have to agree with you that it's going to be incredibly messy and that climate change has a huge, huge role to play in all of this. And recently, we're in what we would call the third wave of autocratization, which is this sort of back wave. So we had the third wave of democratization where we had this sudden inflow at the, at the end of the Cold War of all of these democracies. And we were like, democracy has finally won. We are finally here. We've made it to this, the democratic mountaintop. And look at all of this, this, the voting and the democracy and all of these things. Unfortunately, you know, as history does repeat itself, we do have this sort of backflow where all of these autocrats are taking power again. And while we're in the midst of this, we have climate change, but we also have what I think is the most interesting part. And I think that this is, you know, what is being reiterated is there's this push amongst the population for change. And we're seeing some of the largest groupings and largest demonstrations across the globe by people, these, these social movements, these protests for change. And so I am hopeful that democracy will win out or some good iteration of it. So that's, you know, we, we evolve into a, a society where the goodness of society wins. But I think that there are two paths that, that we could go down. We could go down the democratic one where democracy ends up winning and we make these changes based on 
the desires and the needs of the masses because that is what is absolutely demanded. The other sort of maybe negative viewpoint could be, what if the autocrats are the ones who propose the solutions to climate change? What if they get smarter and say, well, instead of having to go through this democratic process to get some sort of change, whether or not this happens, I don't know if an autocrat's going to be smart enough to come up with the solutions. I think of like Xi Jinping and China has talked about how democracy is so slow and you need an, an authoritarian government in order to expedite a process to get things done quicker. And that was sort of the argument with the pandemic was, can't you see how democracy itself has caused so many problems with the way the government can respond to these sorts of things? So I think there are two paths that we could go down. And at some point in time, I don't know if it's the next hundred years, if it's sooner than that, one of them will win out. There's a part of me that's hope, very hopeful that it's democracy because, you know, much better than being ruled by a dictator. But this is one of those things that it will be very messy. And it, the climate, of course, is going to demand to be at the center of attention. And it's a matter of who and what becomes the sort of catalyst to get that sort of government change. And as we see these changes coming through, I think you're all dead on, unfortunately, literally, about the increase in conflict we're going to see in the next 10, 20, 30 years globally. Probably worth mentioning, we're already starting to see some signals of this. For instance, uh, we're recording this now in August of 2021, but in December of 2020, the largest protest in history actually occurred in India with roughly about 250 million people participating in a general strike which is related to uh, farmers' protests that were happening at that time. So this is probably a good time for us to transition and maybe not end on too much of a pessimistic <laughs> doom and gloom note and ask you all as our final question here, how can we evolve to combat authoritarianism domestically and abroad? What can be done to safeguard against it in the future? I think that we're looking at a really interesting way of making authoritarianism good. <laughs> and I say this because democracy seems inherently associated with individual rights rather than community rights. And to impose the kinds of changes that we as a society will need to create to not burn fossil fuels, to not put methane into the environment, to get people to not eat as much meat, all of the things that will be required in the future and that will have to be imposed and regulated in some way. Think of what we're arguing about now just with vaccine cards and I don't have to show my vaccine and what, what are you talking about? We're gonna soon arguably have ration cards for how much fossil fuels you get to burn, how much methane and how much meat or, I mean, are these things coming and how will it happen? I see democracy as the ideal that we put up there but I've become so cynical about what our democratic system has created the wars that it's wrought, the inequality that the United States and its great democracy has imposed upon the rest of the world, that I'm quite cynical about democracy being the system that actually wins in the end, because I don't see it as having been very successful and in fact, having been very harmful and in promoting individual selfishness over a community good. I don't think that I know what will happen, what the human solution to this will be if we make it through, but I don't think it's going to be any of the above. I think it's going to be something different, something little socialist. What, what does that mean? Socialist democracy. I guess one could put those two things together, but that's where my mind is going. I mean, if we look at the way things currently are going, democracy is not going to just outgun the allure of what authoritarianism could offer on its own. Like, that's just sad to say, but I think that's very true. So I think that's really where we're headed. It's like trying to figure out what is the most sexy part of authoritarianism and then game the system. I honestly think you're just going to have to like take it over and try to adapt it, like, like roll with the punches, honestly, find the sexiest parts. And then hopefully someone comes along and has really good ideas about how to make the world better. And the, the only thing I can think of is you, you take what you have and then you strip the power from it by diluting it a lot. Because I think that if you try to go head to head with just out muscling it, that's just, it's not going to work. And I think technology going into the future is going to play a really big part in 
where we go. I mean, we're already seeing the power of it. This this is an age of mass disinformation on a scale we've never seen. It's easier than ever to make fake things appear. It's a lot of trying to figure out, are we ever going to be able to stop disinformation completely? No, we're not. Honestly, it's kind of like we just have to get really creative, roll our sleeves up and be like, all right, so this is happening. How can we take what's happening and use it to our advantage to hopefully spread some better information but it's going to be a really interesting time ahead of us so i'm going to try to to not be too cynical and and (laughs) just be a bit of an optimist on this panel just because i'm a glass half full kind of person in general i think democracy is one of those things that maybe it's not marketed well enough and maybe there needs to be safeguards. And I think that's where we get into this idea that maybe democracy as we think of it now is not the answer. Maybe there's something better that we can do. Because I think there's something to be said about having the masses have a bit of a say. It's not always the answer, but sometimes it is. As far as like what to do about authoritarianism and you know the solution i unfortunately don't really have much of an answer for that what i would say is like a call to action if there's something that you really care about there's something that just get, keeps you up at night that you just really just want to see change volunteer if you can educate yourself have hard discussions with your family with your friends with your peers with your colleagues about what you want to see change because change is something that is possible if enough people care about it. And so I would just say, if there's something that you're really passionate about, I think that might be a one way that we could combat authoritarianism, at least maybe domestically, just get involved, go volunteer, try to make the world a better place because I sure don't have the answer on how to make everything better, but I can try and make the world around me and that the people that I interact with a little better by giving time and effort and energy to something I care about. Thanks, Rachel. Lest I sound too cynical, I will say that I would look to movements like Black Lives Matter, which now having been taken over by women and non-binary individuals and, and seeing more people involved in society rather than less more community building, more connection. That is actually where I see things going. So it sounds confusing what I'm saying that we need like a happy authoritarianism. What I mean is that we need a kind of community engagement that involves not just the patriarchy, but involves everybody from every walk of life possible, Um, immigrant, native person, indigenous, uh, non-binary, the entire gamut. But there will need to be restrictions no more laissez-faire, no more take, smash, and grab, get what you want. There will be more regulations than we've ever seen. You know, whereas we talk about Governor Cuomo in New York and things that people have known about for decades, and now they're being revealed, now they're being talked about. Now there is a community imposition of how things should be, people should be treated, how things should go. And what I'm saying is I see the future as a combination of more stakeholders involved, less control by the few at the same time that we regulate the shit out of everything. And I don't know what that future is, but that's where I see us. Well, that ended a lot more positively than I thought. And, And perhaps that is a great theme for us to end on is maybe it's not as bad as we're terrified it could be. And with that, I want to thank all of our panelists for just such a phenomenal discussion. I feel like I've certainly learned quite a bit and have a varying outlook on the future myself. So uh, just before we uh, formally say farewell to all of you, I just want you all to briefly tell us uh, where we can find you, where we can read any of your works, and anything that's good in the world you want to promote, uh, nonprofits, uh, books, articles you're working on, or I'll start, Kara. You can find me on pretty much all the socials. My Facebook is pretty intense and I like to engage in the comments and that that can be pretty fun. You get out your popcorn and and enjoy that. And I have a a number of trade books out. My first one is The Woman Who Would Be King. Second one is When Women Ruled the World. The one that's just out is The Good Kings. And the subtitle is Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern Day. Rachel here. You can find me on Twitter. I have not been as on it nearly as much lately. I've taken a bit of a social media break for my mental health, but you can find me on Twitter. Check out my website, rachelfinnell.com. I'm just a baby academic, so I don't have a lot of work out there yet, but soon I will. Feel free to reach out if you ever have any questions. I'd be happy to chat with anybody about it. 
Bringing up the rear, I am really a baby academic. I encourage everybody to listen to Ancient Office Hours podcast if you would like to hear me talk to other academics and people in the entertainment industry, and we get all polemic about a variety of topics, mostly humanities and the value of humanities in today's world, a degree or just general knowledge, and a bunch of other fun topics like that. But I am findable on all of the socials. I am just at Lexi Henning on pretty much everything, or you can follow at the Osmandius Project. Once again, thank you all so much for this phenomenal panel. All of the information everybody just mentioned will be in the show notes, so don't worry about writing it down. Again, just a round of applause for our phenomenal, brilliant women on this panel. It was super fun. Thanks so much. Thank you again. I had a blast. Love to do this again. Definitely we'll have to. Maybe like a six-month update. I'd love to see it. It was super fun. Thank you guys. Always great great to talk to you. Yeah, keep me posted on other stuff. I'll, I'll watch for memes, Lexi, as always. Yeah, pleasure as always. And uh, one question I actually wanted to ask you all, but it is the comparison between uh, authoritarian regimes and viruses and how they can evolve and mutate and infect. And basically, uh, if you can inoculate people, give them some information, it can help prevent some things. But just like we're seeing in the U.S. right now, heavily inoculating one population but not others globally just means it'll transfer to other places. As you mentioned, hijacking it. Sometimes we solve viruses by mutating them. In fact, that's what we're doing for things like malaria, is getting mosquitoes and engineering them to spread a bad version of it. Instead of just fight against it, you have to transform it from the inside. How do you get rid of an ideology? So I think there's a, we're going through a moment where I was a child when Anita Hill was talking about Clarence Thomas and everyone was like, oh no, but he would never, and he's a good man. And then they just brushed her aside. And the difference between that and the Kavanaugh situation, which was pretty much the same, but everyone's being inoculated against all of this bullshit and they can see it so much better. And that's where I love to embrace the word woke. You're going to call me woke? Fine. Because it is, it's like a Neo in the matrix where you're like, oh my God, I can see it all. I can see my generation the things that I put up with sexual harassment that I would never put up with now because everyone can see things and talks about it. Things are being exposed. So that inoculation analogy, I think works very well for just the perception of what is happening around us. Change is slow, but mm-hmm. we can do it. Yeah. It's funny because <laughs> when somebody was like, we need to just find the sexy parts of authoritarianism and make it good. I was just sitting here <laughs> thinking about mass and mandatory vaccines and, and whatever. And like, you know, we're so in the now it's my personal freedom. I can do whatever the fuck I want. I don't need to do that. I'm just like, someone's just got to take sexy authoritarianism and be like, vaccines are good. They're, you get all this. You don't get this if you don't do it. Communal authoritarianism is what we must create. Good luck. I just get so frustrated with people who are like, but my freedom, but my freedom. And it's like, I think we have a fundamental disagreement on what freedom actually is. We're disagreeing, but when the world starts to burn, their freedom will fucking matter because it cannot be sustained. It will kill us all. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, you'll be free and dead. Claiming that you're free to pee where you want, it's going to have externality. Yeah, there's a really good article about this I posted on my Facebook yesterday. It's a 2020 article in Brown Kendi, and you may have already read it in The Atlantic. It's all individual freedom versus communal freedom, and it's really well stated. It shows the shift that's happening in the United States in particular, but globally as well. Pretty cool. I mean, it's really scary, though. There's like a shift not only in the interpretation of what is freedom and like personal freedom and also even coming from like studying nationalism and stuff. It's this thing where I do this little test now when I talk to people and I'm like, hey, do you know what patriotism and nationalism are? Can you give me a two second blurb on what you think they are? And are they synonyms for each other? A lot of people are like, yeah, they're direct synonyms for each other. It's basically the same thing. One's maybe just a little stronger. And I'm just like, you clearly have never read Orwell and you clearly have never figured out what it is so you know i'm just like "Mm, okay that's encouraging yeah it'd be beautiful a little exposure of our hubris for a lot american exceptionalism man that in itself is its own kool-aid everyone's america's so exceptional and i'm like in what way look at the italians look at the egyptians look at the british 
it's hard to give that shit up. It is, but I'm like, you know, just because you're the biggest bad doesn't mean you're the best. I mean, my my routine example is I spent a whole freaking semester in the UK. They conquered half the world and they still don't know how to fucking spice their own food. Okay, <laughs> everything is bland. That's what my partner always says is they conquered the world to get some flavor. And they don't use it. Everything is just bland and boring. And I'm just like, how did you have like control of all the spice islands and use none of them? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 